Welcome back to another episode of the Vela News Podcast. Fred Dreyer here coming to you from the new old uh, world headquarters of Vela News here in Boulder, Colorado, where we had more snow over the weekend. No bike riding for me, unfortunately. Um, I hope you all got out there and rode your bikes because, hey, racing season is just around the corner. And uh, if you've been following the news on the website, the World Tour racing season is getting ready to get started, too. Uh, we're going to talk with Andrew, Andrew Hood later in the program about the upcoming Tour Down Under and some of the reporting he has been doing around that, who is expected to win, the teams, the riders going down there, the significance of the Tour Down Under, uh, because it's a World Tour opener and... I- I don't know. I just have a hard time getting excited about world tour racing in uh, early to mid January, but that's why we have Andy going to Australia. But before we get to that, um, I am really, really excited. We have some news here on the Velo News podcast. News from the Unis- universe of Velo News. And that is, we have uh, some new hires, some new people joining the old Velo News team, and one of those new hires is standing right across from me. It's Betsy Welch. Let's give her a round of applause, everyone. Uh, Betsy uh, was on the podcast a few months ago talking about her experiences reporting on Gravel. And that was back when Betsy was a contributor to Velo News. But we we got her in the fold. You stepped up full-time status. How does it feel to be a full-time Velo News reporter? It's a dream come true. Yeah, you don't have to lie. You have a lot of work. It means uh, to have a lot of stuff to do. Well, to be honest, we're calling this my soft launch. I'm just here a couple days a week for the next few weeks while I wrap up my other life as a, a public health nurse. But it's already really fun and exciting, and story ideas are, are bubbling very quickly. So Betsy is a ripping cyclist. You're a great writer and journalist, and you've been doing a lot of work. But yeah, as you mentioned, you are a uh, you're a public health nurse. Um, so if anyone happens to like injure themselves around the Velo News office, we can have Betsy patch us up. If I'm like cutting a bagel in the snack room and I do that thing with the bagel knife where it goes through the bagel and cuts my hand open, uh, Betsy, are you confident in stitching up Fred Dreyer's hand? Of course. Okay. Yeah. yeah. There were bagels today. Fortunately, no casualties. Yeah. All right. Well, we're psyched to have you aboard, Betsy. Um, we were talking earlier about some of the storylines that you're going to be tackling for us in 2020. Um, you are coming on board to report on lots of different um, topics for us, but among them high on the list is gravel and mountain bike racing, and also women's cycling, which is something that we have written about through the context of pro-women's road racing and mountain bike racing in the past. But um, we want to expand it going forward. And so uh, a couple weeks ago, we had a fun little event. We went to a local bike shop that has a bar in it, and we held ourselves a women's cycling focus group. And now, Betsy, you were intricately involved in that uh, focus group, set the scene, tell the good listeners. Well, I mean, what, what was it like? So we invited um, a bunch of women from the community. I think close to 40 showed up. And these are women who are cycling aficionados of, of every degree. We had some pros, some coaches, uh, industry people, and then just um, recreationalists. Um, and 
you know, with the diversity of women there was also a diversity of what they're interested in, what they want to see covered in uh, media, um, the stories they like to read, what they want to know more about, and what they already know a lot about. Um, we were all super enlightened by their contributions, and they were also super pumped that we took the time to ask them what they thought. Um, so we got a ton of good info from that night, and hopefully um, a lot of that will lend itself to stories that that I work on this year. Yeah, I'm really excited too. I mean, we definitely talked a lot about some of the types of stories we've covered here before, you know, pro women's road racing, who is winning the healthy aging tour and the Giro Rosa and that type of stuff. But something that I thought was really interesting that came out of it was um, the desire to read more about um, stories that deal with like the cycling community. So um, group rides for women, um, you know, uh, local cycling clubs that are succeeding at getting women involved in the sport. Um, a few months ago, you wrote about a club in Bentonville, Arkansas, for example, that's had a bunch of success getting new women to not just get into mountain biking, but sort of climb the ladder and progress in the sport. And I, I'm really, really excited about that too. I mean, what else, what other types of feedback did you get in your, uh, we split into these smaller focus groups. What other feedback did you get in your, your focus group, uh, Betsy? Um, well, in addition to that, of course, there's, there's a ton of interest among women in, in stories and backstory. So we talked a lot about who we follow on social media and why and what kind of stories are interesting, which um, don't always have to do with racing. Um, we talked about gear. Um, women are super into gear. They um, are really thorough when researching um, things to purchase, and they would like to hear about gear from, um, from women, because um, who wants to read a saddle review written by a dude? Not me. Unless it's a saddle for me. Um, yeah, so I mean, like you're you're you got your marching orders. You have all these fun things to report on: community gear, racing, gravel, uh, culture, um, Instagram. Who's the best? Who's the best like um, Instagram follow right now in uh, women's cycling? Uh, oh, I can't remember her name, but there's a woman who who does like snarky posts where she makes fun of um, like women being used as models in oh, bike yeah. ads. Okay. I can't remember what she's called. A lot of fans of her. Um, but then really, like, everything from downhillers to, to roadies to, to bike packers. Lots of fans of Lale out there. Um, you going to get any uh, workout advice from Kate Courtney's Instagram about doing, like, these really difficult-looking uh, workout oh routines? God. Like her jumps? Like the her jumps. box jumps? Yeah. Crazy. Or th there was one that it looked like a medieval torture device that looked like it was like literally working out every single muscle in the body at the same time. That's the reason why she's a world champion mountain biker. And uh, we are just humble, uh, aspiring cyclists here at the Velo News headquarters. Um, well, I'm really excited for it. And, and stay tuned to VeloNews.com for lots of different um, content from Betsy and stories um, concerning women's cycling. And if you want to reach out to Betsy, what's the best way to do that, Betsy? What's your email? Well, I have a brand new Velo News email. It's bwelch at velonews.com. Okay, reach out. Uh, moving on, Betsy, we have a ton of storylines and just fun stuff to follow going on in the world of North American gravel. Um, the gravel racing scene is a couple weeks from starting with the old, uh, you told me it was the, the Texas Chain Ring Massacre. 
That's right. Going on in Texas. Uh, but before we even hit the racing, there's some news and some topics we have to discuss. The first is that apparently USA Cycling uh, is really bullish on gravel and met with a number of promoters and athletes from the gravel scene out in Bentonville, Arkansas, a few days ago to, uh, from what we understand, you know, create partnerships, try and understand how they can help gravel races, how gravel races can help USA Cycling. It's interesting because it is a confluence of two scenes and bodies that um, we have seen at polar opposite ends of the American cycling scene, where you have USA Cycling, the literal, like, the, the, the by-the-book the uh, governing body, and then the gravel scene, which, you know, gravel has grown up outside of the realms of USA Cycling, not by the book. Renegade, um, grassroots, you know, part of the definition, I feel like, of American gravel is that it's not aligned with any type of governing body, etc. Um, you've talked to some people who are there. What's, what's been your feedback on what people are talking about? Yeah, I've talked to a couple race directors who were there. Um, I think everyone kind of went um, not knowing what to expect and sort of left kind of mind blown. Um, first of all, it was probably the first time that a lot of those people have been in one room. I mean, we've got people from the DK, we've got, um, you know, the Kings from Rooted Vermont, um, Bobby Wintle, lots of people who don't always get to hang out together. Um, so, you know, an offshoot of, of the USA Cycling piece is that those those guys all got to share ideas, which is really cool. But um, one thing that everyone has said is that they felt like USA Cycling was really there to listen and um, not really there to promote an agenda or give advice, but really there to say like, wow, you guys are, are building and have built this thing and, and wow, it's huge. And um, tell us about it and you know, hopefully down the line we can help and be involved. Yeah, I, 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 that's what other feedback I got too. And I think it's part of USA Cycling's wider push to have some new membership products that are going to be rolling out. Um, I'm writing a piece about that coming out here in the next week or so. And I know that Rob Martini, CEO, and a number of other people there have been looking at the growth in American cycling around things like Nike and gravel and just stuff that's like exploded outside of the umbrella of USA Cycling and saying to themselves, okay, we have a new regime here at USA Cycling. How do we reach out to these organizations and races and cultures that have succeeded without our help and see how can we tap into that? What can we learn from them? How can we help each other? And I think it's, it's, it's something that has to happen. Um, if the national governing body is really going to be a national governing body, then it needs to be involved in um, or try to help out and be involved in uh, movements going on in cycling. Gravel is this huge movement. I mean, USA Cycling can't just be like, you know, uh, like crits and traditional cross-country mountain bike races anymore. If it wants to be relevant, it has to, it has to be involved in gravel. I mean, something that, that I thought was insane that came out of this was they said that uh, they looked at the calendar and there are now 700 gravel events on the calendar for 2020, 700. <laughs> I mean, I remember when it was just like an oddity and you know, a couple dozen and you'd look at some of these websites that listed them all and you know, there weren't very many. And now I just think like a lot of promoters have seen A, the explosion of popularity of gravel, but B, you can put one of these events on and not like, 
you know, go bankrupt doing it and um, they're getting inspired and involved. Yeah. And you can put one on that's like really weird and unique and cool. Um, you know, there aren't a lot of rules um, telling you, you know, what to do to put on a gravel race and people are running with that and creative people are really running with it. And the cool thing too is that participants see it and they're like, huh, this this thing down in Southern Arizona sounds really heady and cool and I wanna go or, you know, the rock cobbler in California. I heard you ride through some dude's living room. Like, that's crazy. Um, as far as I know, riding through a li- living room, not USA Cycling approved. Like the US, <laughs> the UCI, I don't know if they have a special like, designation or they have to have a commissaire there to like make sure no one's watching TV at the time or something like that. You know, I, I don't know if that's USA cycling. Yeah. Approved. So get it while you can people. <laughs> yeah. But so you brought up, um, the creativity and promoters doing different stuff and you, you know, the last time we talked to you, you were getting ready to go down to Southern Arizona for this spirit world 100, this crazy gravel race on the borderlands. And you have since come back and you're in the process of writing an amazing feature for Vela News Magazine, not just about this race, but like about the culture and the fun going on in these creative gravel races that are not, you know, not the dirty Kanza, not the crusher and the races that everybody knows about, but like, these are like the ones kind of bubbling below the surface. Uh, tell me what you found in your reporting. I want to go to Nebraska. Like, I, I can't believe I'm saying this. I've never been to Nebraska, but man, I, of those 700 races, I don't know. I mean, a hundred of them might be in Nebraska. And we're talking like gorgeous canyons and topography I've never seen. Or, you know, Gravel Worlds, which was born, you know, out of a grassroots group called the the Pirate Cycling League or something, and they used to have to go get lottery tickets from gas stations. That was like the the checkpoints to show that you were on route. And then if anyone won the lottery tickets, then the race promoters would give the money back. And I don't think they ever made more than 14 bucks or something, but just stuff like that, like this incredibly impassioned community of promoters that that have a vision and they realize it and, and people come. Um, so, yeah, very excited to explore all the gravel races. I mean, everything started out as grassroots. You can't say that Dirty Kanza wasn't once, you know, a couple people in a parking lot. But um, just to see the support for all levels is, is really exciting. What, uh, what's the story from then from uh, Spirit World you can share for us? When you think back to your experience at Spirit World, like what's the image that pops into mind, the defining image of Betsy's Spirit World? <laughs> Oh man. But you can share with us yeah. anyway. Yeah, no, there's there's so many. I mean, I I joke about the the finisher crystals a lot like, you know, instead of a medal or or something, they they gave us each like a piece of, you know, hemp twine with a crystal. Cool. Um and but everyone wore them. Like the next day on the shakeout ride, everyone's wearing their finisher crystal. I mean, it was just sort of like everyone embracing like this is weird and cool and it was a really hard bike race. And there were mariachis at the finish line. Mariachi band, yeah. which we were begging them to stay, but they had another gig in Tucson. Ah, yeah. Cool. All right. Well, I'm really excited to read more of this piece that will be out in the next issue of Vela News, but also to just follow your reporting on velanews.com because 
Um, you got your finger on the pulse of this stuff. Um, you know, last week we talked to TJ Eisenhart about his entrepreneurial spirit in the world of gravel. And the same thing is going on with the promoters. Um, there's, there's dynamism right now in American cycling. Things are changing, you know? Yeah. Okay. The tour of California went away and some of these domestic road teams have gone away. And, um, you know, a lot of the fanfare around big time road racing seems to be in flux, but like, you know, there's whenever you look at the change, you know, you look at an ecosystem that's changing, there's also growth. And right now the growth is here. And I just cannot wait to see what 2020 brings for gravel racing and for you, Betsy, <laughs> and for you. Thanks, Brad. I'm really excited for all of it. I'm excited to, um, you know, listen to and write about more women's issues. Um, excited to just meet more women at these events too. To I'm excited to ride, to write, to learn, to sit in a tiny little office cubicle with you. Yeah, that's the best part. <laughs> all right, well, we're going to uh, check in with Andrew Hood to hear all about the Tour Down Under and the start of the World Tour season. So we will bid you adieu, Betsy. Thank you. As promised, Andrew Hood is on the line. Andy, you are coming to us from the man cave in northern Spain. You're looking a little bundled up and cold, which is totally contrary to the photos that I was seeing on your social media from this week, Andy, because it looks like you took a trip down to the warmer climates down there in southern Spain to attend some team camps. Uh, did you did you get a suntan? Did you go kiteboarding? Did you do anything fun on the beach there, Andy? I did have some good paella. Jumped on the high-speed train and went down to Alicante. Got a cheap running car, drove across to Calpe. A whole bunch of E.T., uh, Byron, Laren. Uh, it's really kind of just ground zero for this, these kind of early season training camps. Everyone goes to Calpe, around Alicante and Dania. Or teams now we saw uh, Enios is on the Canary Islands. It's really this kind of time of year when a lot of the teams get together, new riders are incorporated into the lineup, and a lot of them have media days. So that's why all the journalists kind of parachuted into Calpe. You know, the, the day ten of the other day was a Dissunic quit step. Uh, you know, just a big vibe there. Patrick uh, Lefevre, the team boss, brings in all the sponsors, all the VIPs kind of rent out this whole hotel they've been going to for years. And uh, it's just kind of a, a nice way to kickstart the season. It's a chance for the media to chat to some of the riders, and then uh, everyone, you know, kind of gets well lubricated, let's say. Some paella and some good red wine. Yeah, and that's the big difference between this training camp and the one in December. A couple of weeks ago, we were talking about the December training camps, which oftentimes is sort of the really get-to-know-you training camps where new riders are coming on board. That's where you get the photos where the teams are going on team rides, but everyone's wearing like Mitch Mash jerseys. You know, people are wearing the kit from their old team from 2019. And now 2020 is like the, the first big training camp, I feel like, where everyone's wearing the same colors and they invite media, which adds a whole new dynamic because these poor riders... Oh, these poor, poor multi-million dollar riders have to sit down and be questioned by people like you, Andy. So what, I mean, who'd you talk to and were you throwing fastballs or were you throwing big meatballs to them? What kind of questions were you coming with? Yeah, we had uh, the, the Tour Down Under squad had already gone. So, uh, you know, Sam Bennett 
you know, the kind of the new sprinter. That was a big story there. One of the wanted to talk to Bennett, but he was gone already, already down in Australia for that race. So a few of the guys weren't around. Uh, uh, Hodeg wasn't there as well. He's back at, he's, he's in Colombia. So there wasn't quite everybody was there, but they had the big hitters. You know, Remco was there, Ala Philippe, Bob Youngles was there, Stebar. So, you know, most of the big names, you know, it's interesting this year, Fred, you know, quick step, they lost Gilbert, they lost Viviani and a few other riders. 11 new riders come on this year. A lot of new young riders. They're hoping to kind of fill some of those gaps. The pressure's on. So that's what we're asking them. You know, it's like, can you guys be as successful as you were last year? Because, I mean, I mean, quick step, you know, they had a great season, won 68 races. Uh, number one ranked team again. You know, Lefebvre has this kind of uh, the wolf pack. It seems to work pretty well. And uh, they, they're confident that even by losing guys like Viviani and uh, Gilbert, that, uh, that they'll keep winning. I think they're going to fall off a cliff, won't win any races in 2020, not a single one. Uh, yeah, that's, that's not going to happen. I mean, that is the story with this team over the last few seasons. It's just plug and play. Guys come and go. Sprinters come and go. Marcel Kittle's there kicking butt. Then he leaves. And then it's Gavidia who steps up and starts winning all the big races. He leaves. And then it's Viviani. And now Viviani's gone. And they have Sam Bennett. And the big question is, will he be able to, you know, help amass this number of wins? 68 wins. It's insane. And they've done it, What I think this was like their third or fourth year in a row. And then uh, I love your man Lefevre coming out with the quote saying, oh, we have the fifth or sixth biggest payroll. Only the fifth or sixth biggest payroll, yet we continue to win. So, of course, you know, the expectation is for, the, for them to have another big winning season. And it's and, and Lefebvre loves it when when riders leave his team and take that big money contract. You know he just sits back and and loves to watch guys like Gavidia. You know had a pretty rough season with that move to UAE. Uh, guys like Terpstra, you know won some big races uh, under Lefebvre. And man, well you know had a bad crash last year, so that takes you out. But he he kind of uh, you know licks his lips and and sits back, hits back and uh, and and just watches with glee as these guys take the take the big money. And then they go to another team, and it doesn't quite work as well for them. So that'll be an interesting storyline as well, because you got some guys leaving, especially a guy like Joubert going to Lotto Sudal. But man, you know, once again, the big buzz was Remco. Uh, to be honest, it's the first time I've actually seen Remco in, in person, because uh, his calendar just didn't quite match up to any of the races I went to last year. So the big buzz for Remco, you know, he's going to the Giro this year, making his uh, Grand Tour debut. Uh, he's got the Olympics online as well as uh, a pretty busy spring calendar. And he's talking, uh, you know, he, he's more motivated than ever. But he's a, he's an interesting guy. I mean, he's he's 19 years old, but really carries himself well. You can tell he's, he's going to be a big star in cycling. But just patiently just answer all the questions and just, you know, maybe in 10 years he won't be as excited about talking to the media. But he was up there literally – uh, you know, went to the top level, this kind of bar area at the top of this big uh, tower hotel. He was up there for four hours gibbering away to all the Dutch, excuse me, all the Belgian TV, the French were out there, finally got it with the English press. And he just patiently answered question after question after question. And he thinks that, uh, you know, 
He's 19, man. He wants to keep racing. He wants to keep winning races. Like Patrick Lefebvre says, we just can't hold this kid back. Four hours. My God. You know, I think that's something that gets lost to cycling fans is that, um, you know, you watch something like the NFL and these guys have their press conferences or the media day and they're going up there and talking for 15, 20 minutes. And then you look at that through the lens of uh, a pro cycling. I remember being at the finish line of Liege Bestone Liege the year Andy Schleck won. And he did, yeah, an hour and a half worth of interviews across five languages. And it was like, okay, here's the Germans. Okay, jibber, jibber, jibber. Okay, here's the Dutch. Or here's the Luxembourgese and the English media outlet. And he, you know, they just go from language to language seamlessly. And so Remco, this 19-year-old kid, four hours of questions from multiple languages, and he's just handling it like a pro. That's pretty impressive. You don't see a ton of 19-year-olds uh, that they're able to do that, let alone win big races like that. Um, I mean, what was your what was your impressions, Andy? I mean, he's this baby faced kid. He's you know this kid who uh, was being born when you were you'd already been working for Velenews for a few years at that time. <laughs> um, I mean, I did, know, did he look that... like a pro cyclist or did he look like your little nephew? Yeah, he's got a little stubble on his chin. You know, he's starting to fill out a little bit. Definitely has a little uh, the boyish look to a boyish man, as he might say. Uh-huh. But yeah, he definitely carries himself like a pro, though. He make no mistake about it. This this kid, he's got star written all over him. I mean, he was already a big star even as a junior. So he's been in the center of attention in the Brita than the Belgian media for already a couple of years. So he handles himself quite well, carries himself well. And the other guy that everyone was talking to, of course, was uh, Julian Alaphilippe, uh, Lulu. You know, after that season he had last year, you know, came really the closest uh, French rider to winning. The Tour de France really, I think, it's probably he know. I mean, there's obviously he finished fifth overall. There's been obviously other French riders on the podium. So you could argue that, yeah, maybe those guys were actually closer to winning. Philippe, you know, carried that yellow jersey into the Alps, into really two or three, four days away from Paris. And no Frenchman's done that in a long, long time. So he was also a big focus. And the big question there, of course, is, you know, are you going to go back to the Tour to try to win? And he, he's already been saying already – uh, for a couple of weeks and a couple of months, really, that no, trying to win the tour not going to be his goal in 2020. Though, you know, he did kind of say for the first time that, yeah, maybe someday in a couple of years, he thinks he might try to go back and try to win the tour on a, on a course that favors him. And it's, it's kind of a shame that the Olympics are this year because he's obviously putting uh, a lot of emphasis on the Olympics and the world championships. But man, this year's tour course is great for uh, Alaphilippe. You know, just like last year, it's kind of a lot of punchy climbs and, you know, these kind of, uh, you know, just endless mountains. And the altitude isn't quite as much as an issue as it was last year. So it's kind of a shame that he won't go back to the Tour this year to try to win. But I think it's a smart call because you know, he's such a great rider. He told us that he won't be defending his uh, San Roma title. He's not going to be racing uh, Strade Bianche, but he is going to the Tour of Flanders for the first time into the Ardennes into the Tour, into Olympics, into Worlds, and Lombardia. So he's going to be very busy this year. So why do you think that is? Uh, the, what struck to, to me about his schedules being particularly strange was um, no Milano Sanremo and then uh, no Strada Bianca because those are courses, uh, you know, he won both of them last year. They're races that seem to cater to his style is that just a matter of wanting to give himself a little bit more time to get into shape? You know, peaking for the Olympics, is that a matter of, hey, you know, I, I want to try something new with the Tour of Flanders? Why do you think he's skipping those races? 
Yeah, I think it's a little bit of all those things you just mentioned. He'll be doing Perry Nice, going for a big push there to try to win it. Uh, and then he'll be going into Dwarves, uh, Dwarves Vlanderlin, uh, which is uh, early early April. So I think the idea is for him to really kind of build up towards a major peak around Flesh and Liège and give you know give Flanders a pretty good run. It's his first time, so no one's expecting him to win. He wants to go there. He said to learn and to help the team. But I think the real peaks are coming later in the season. That first early peak is going to be uh, in the Ardennes. So you know, I mean, it's a hard race. Strade Bianchi is a very hard race. Uh, Stebar told me the other day that he thinks it's the hardest race in the whole World Tour calendar. So I think you know don't want to put too much pressure on him too early in the season and really have him be strong when it counts in the Ardennes and then going towards the Olympics. Hmm. I mean, he's definitely five-star favorite for the Olympics, just looking at that course, knowing how punchy it is. A couple long climbs, but a real punchy climb. Um, so I guess that makes sense. Um, I still wonder, though, if some of these guys who want to do well at the Olympics, if choosing to ride the Tour de France is going to be eh, just asking a little bit too much, too close to that race. Um, but... You know, that's always the gamble with the Olympics. There's, it just seems like you can never slot a big race like that with so much importance into it, into the schedule and not force riders to make tough challenges one way or the other. Well, that'd be the big question. We'll see if the guys doing the Giro and then kind of prepping uh, a little more tranquilo going into the Olympics hit, you know, arrive maybe a little bit fresher, but you know, there's nothing better. I mean, most guys come out of the tour, depending on how you race it, of course. Guys will be on their knees, but if you're a guy kind of tapering toward the tour, toward the Olympics, like Valverde is already saying he's going to pull out of the of the tour early. Um, so I think a lot of guys will have their eye on the Olympics. Will kind of you know they won't bury themselves every day, even though just finishing the tour is going to be hard. But that's going to be the big question because sometimes you know racing is the best preparation for another race. So that will be one of the big storylines for this season. Uh, Hoodie, we are a week away from the start of the World Tour season down there at the Tour Down Under. You are getting ready to fly uh, to the other side of the globe to cover this race for us. When we last talked, there was still some fear about wildfires. There was still talk and questions about whether or not the race would be going on. Um, It sounds like the race is in a more secure position uh, a week out with the with the fires, I've seen a number of teams already going down there, announcing rosters, committing to it. Um, what's your sentiment about um, you know the race happening in 2020? Yeah, it looks like everything's good to go. It it did get cooler last week. There was even some rain around Melbourne. Uh, even though the worst of the fires are still in that area between Sydney and Melbourne, kind of on the southeast coast. And remember, Adelaide, where the Tour Down Under is, is is in South Australia. You know, nearly a 800, perhaps even 1,000 miles, 1,000 kilometers away, excuse me, from where the worst of the fires are. And typically, there's this prevailing west to east wind that is pushing all the smoke kind of out. You know, we've seen it hit New Zealand. So so right now, there hasn't been – there was one kind of major fire in around the Adelaide Hills. That was a, a, a couple of weeks ago. Since then, there hasn't been any major fires in Adelaide. There was a big fire in Kangaroo Island, which is kind of a couple hundred – kilometers southeast, southwest, it's an island. Um, and temperatures, I saw the forecast for this coming week, uh, warmed, kind of typical Australian heat in the high 80s, low 90s. You know, that's going to help a little bit to take some of the pressure off. So I think the Tour Down Under is going to be safe. 
the bigger question is going to be for the Cadell Evans race. They've included a women's race and some other racing there, some other public events. So they have like three or four days of events, you know, pretty close to uh, some of where the fires are down in Victoria and uh, near the Sydney area. But they had the Australian National Championships last week, which were uh, even, you know, kind of in that same area around Melbourne. No problems there to hold that race, even though there is a little bit of smoke. That's going to be the bigger concern, I think, is, is more smoke than any any uh, extreme heat or even fire danger. So uh, this race, Tour Down Under, it's, um, you know, it's a tough race. There's some hilly stages. It's the season opener. There's always fun stories and fun content that comes out of this about how out of shape guys are, or how wish how guys wish they had better form, even though they probably have uh, fine form. Um, a race that is revered for its uh, cloverleaf design, for being based around the same uh, town and series of towns to make it a little bit easier on transfers for the riders and the media. Um, what are the other things that stand out to you about Tour Down Under? If you were explaining this race to a total, uh, you know, to a, a new cycling fan, what would you tell them about it? Well, I would say that the race is certainly more challenging and difficult than it was a few years ago. When it did first start out, it was almost a criterium race. You know, you'd see guys like Andre Greipel win the overall. Now, I mean, they've, had, they've kind of gradually made the race a little bit harder. They've added a day. Now it's a six-day uh, stage race now. Uh, the Wollonga Hill is always kind of the trademark uphill finale. Uh, Richie Porter's won that stage six, maybe even seven times in a row. Um and uh, but the race has definitely gotten a little bit harder. They've added uh, one kind of other hard climbing stage, so it's certainly not as easy as it used to be. And just generally, the general trend we've been talking about, looking back in this past decade, you know, every World Tour race is pretty much full on race. Even even racing in January, I mean, the distances are a little bit shorter than a typical World Tour race. I mean, most stages are 130 to 150. But they're racing pretty bloody hard, so it's not like it's an easy race. Like where, I mean, back in the old days, we heard the stories where the guys would be hanging out in the bar every night, drinking, and then getting up the next afternoon and racing. Those days are long gone. This is World Tour. A lot of teams go down there early to train. You know, guys are already going down just to kind of build and use this to kind of go right into the main European races. And so, it's a good race. It's it's uh, it's a big event for Adelaide which uh, is kind of the third largest city in Australia. The community really wraps its arms around the event. All the local communities in the hills get up. If you ever had a chance to go cycling, man, in Australia, this is like a great place to go. There's some wineries, some great hill riding. There's some beaches. I personally have never swam there just because I, you know, the whole idea, because I've seen the shark reports, man. Fred, I'm afraid of the sharks. <laughs> As you should be. Andrew Hood, I appreciate you chiming into the Velnews podcast. We're going to let you get going so you can pack your bags and head to Australia. All right. Thanks, Fred. 